This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to this special episode of The Takeout because there are so many things to talk about. We are just cranking out as much information as we can to help you understand and look at the world around you as it's changing so rapidly as a result of COVID-19 and possibly with the exception of the scientific and medical world no world has been rocked more deeply and possibly for a longer duration than the industry we regard as travel tourism and hospitality and I have a special guest Peter Greenberg Peter tell us what you do for CBS about travel and how you got to know so much about the industry well I'm the travel editor for CBS News but I go back to the 70s when I was a correspondent for Newsweek and like you I always had a you know suitcase in the trunk of my car always going to the first scene of everything I could go to and it dawned on me very early in my career that nobody was covering travel and transportation as news the process of travel so in those days, I was able to use my access as a journalist and get trained in the cockpit, get in the cabin. I want to emphasize I'm not a licensed pilot, but I am cockpit qualified. Uh, and every other aspect of the, of the, of the work areas of, of travel, from loading baggage to trains to automobiles to cruise ships. I am a Coast Guard captain. Um, and so I needed to ask the right questions so I could tell people about the process because I realized early on that if you could understand and appreciate the process, you might just understand and appreciate the value and the product. And uh, that's what I did. So help my audience understand, not only globally, but also in America, the size of this industry. It is the largest service industry in the world. It's one out of every 10 jobs. And until just recently, it was one out of every five new jobs. It's about 11% of global GDP, which is staggering. But an even more impressive figure is that there are about 93 countries in the world. Their, their entire economies are based on travel and tourism and airlift, 93. So if you don't have airplanes flying in with people, you don't have an economy. People can't put foot on the tables and governments can get easily destabilized and collapse. I mean, that's that's the impact here. Is that something that we should begin to wonder about or look for? It's already started to happen in countries like Tanzania and Kenya and Egypt and many, many more where they don't have a central bank that's printing out another $6 trillion in economic stimulus money. Uh, they don't know where to go right now. Remember, as I'm speaking to you right now, 72% of all international destinations are closed. They're shut. There's no air travel whatsoever. They're not letting anybody in. And of the other 28%, there are very many severe restrictions, including 14-day quarantines, which for most people doesn't lend, themsel- doesn't lend itself to uh, an easy travel solution. Let's just take two you mentioned, Tanzania, Egypt. Yeah. Why are those in play? What, what are the acute problems in those two places? Well, what's the majority of their foreign exchange? It's travel and tourism. Remember, I gave you an international average of 11%. In those countries, it's much higher. 
So you put a safari guide out of work. You put a tour operator out of work. You close a hotel. You're putting thousands and thousands of people uh, out of business and, and, and on the streets. I mean, the newest unemployment figures that were even out today, uh, a majority of those are in the service industry. Now, you take that on an international level, you're talking about 100 million jobs at risk. That is not pretty. So in Egypt, it's travel for not only Cairo, but the canal and quite obviously the pyramids. And the, and also the Aswan Dam and, and, and Karnak and all of those things. I mean, that's really, that's their foreign exchange. I mean, what do they produce in Egypt that the world consumes in volume? It's not cars. Right. You know, so that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. And in Tanzania, it is uh, the guides and the safaris and everything related to that part of travel tourism. Sure. The connectivity here is huge. Uh, the best example in this country would be Hawaii. I mean, that is a tourist-based economy by definition. The unemployment rate today, not counting the employment figures that came out this morning, is 39%. That's outrageous. And many of those people, because of the cost of living there, are holding down two jobs. Now they're holding down zero jobs. So you can imagine what they're going through. There's just so many different directions to take this. And for the audience's benefit, we're recording this on May 14th. So today references mean May 14th. Uh, let's start with airlines. What condition are they in here in the United States? And as, as best as you can, Peter, help our audience understand what the new new normal is going to look like? Well, the airlines are still bleeding a lot of cash. United up until recently was bleeding $100 million a day. Uh, Delta and American were about $60 million a day. And even though the government and the CARES Act gave them about you know $29 billion in liquidity, that was earmarked for specific use to keep their payroll going. So basically, the airlines right now are being supported to fly a lot of empty planes. The average load factor on an airplane today is about 13%. That's about 20 people. That's not financially sustainable. Um, and so what have the airlines done? They've parked over 1,700 planes on, on normally used runways, now unused runways, ranging from Atlanta to Victorville, California, to the deserts in Arizona. It's crazy. Uh, and many of those planes, by the way, are not coming back. Uh, they'll be retired. Uh, the 757s, the 767s. Delta has now parked all their MD-88s and MD-90s. And so even now, even with that government bailout, uh, One Airline United has already signaled to their employees that when that requirements to keep them on payroll end on September 30th, October 1st is going to be a very dark day. There'll be a lot of layoffs, a lot. So when the president says, as he does with some frequency, that he has saved the airlines, that's not entirely true. Uh, as well-intentioned as the CARES Act is or was, it may be a bridge to nowhere, just like the SBA PPP money. All of those businesses that are service businesses that took the money and that are keeping their people on staff, well, when that money runs out in about four weeks or maybe five weeks, they may still not have a business, and then those people become unemployed. So the, the ranks of the unemployed in the service industry known as travel and tourism, it's, it's only going to grow. For those airlines that continue to operate, and first of all, do you think any of the major carriers in this country could collapse? Well, ironically, the chairman of Boeing said just a few days ago that he expects at least one major airline. Now, there are only four, right? American, United, Delta, and Southwest. He expects one of those airlines not to survive. Uh, I'm, I, I'm pretty safe in saying that none of them will survive as they're currently constructed. They're all going to come back smaller. They've already been given permission by the U.S. Department of Transportation to drop a lot of unprofitable routes. I mean, they were flying planes with two people on them 
you know, to, to, to you know, secondary and tertiary cities. Those may be gone forever. So there may be communities in this country when the airlines do return to full service, it won't be full service, and a lot of cities will be denied essential air service. Which means airports will shrink in size and scope, employment there will shrink in size and scope, and so on and so on. Well, it gets even worse because 90% of an airport's revenue is not from airlines. It's not from landing fees. It's from parking fees and retail and concessionaires. Uh, There's nobody at the airports now, so they're hurting. What is air travel for those who continue to do it going to look like in the new normal? Well, I hate to say this because I hope I'm wrong. But remember, we're dealing right now with massive consumer credit card defaults on payments. And that's how we usually pay for our travel. And it happened in March. It happened in April. It's happening today and will probably happen June and July and August. So when we're finally given the relative green light from individual states that we can come out of our houses and try to resume our normal life, even though we are culturally inclined to need to travel, we may not have the credit card or the credit limit to support that kind of purchase. So the new normal may be going back to the original days of the, you know, the early jet age when the people who flew were elite and privileged and had the means to do it. But the days of mass tourism and travel, as we've recently known it, may be deferred for at least four or five years. Wow. And on the plane itself, I've seen stories about if you want to board, the airlines want you to are requiring you to wear a mask, but they can't make that mandatory once you're in the plane. Uh, there'll be more. Well, is, is, well, yeah. Go work with that, and also the kind of uh, differences you detect already occurring uh, in terms of the way that a plane is cleaned between flights and things like that. Sure. Well, let me, if I can, major, start with the airport experience because when people get to the airport now, the airports are going to require them to wear masks. Then there's the social distancing concept, which based on the physical design of an airport might not work because if the TSA is going to be taking your temperature and you still have to stand six feet away from the other passenger, those lines, I'm not making this up, could stretch one and a half miles. So there are very few airports that have the physical structure to handle that load. So they're going to have to figure that out. But then once you pass security, and and if you're still living at that point, based on the weight you're having in line, uh, when you get to the gate. Uh, you know, there used to be, you know, eight separate boarding groups at airlines like United. You can kiss that goodbye. Uh, they're going to start boarding from the back to the front. No matter what ticket you're holding, no matter what class of service you're in, no matter how much you paid for your ticket, they don't want you walking by anybody else who's already been pre-boarded and seated. So where you're sitting will determine the order in which you're boarding. So back to front. Uh, there'll be no boarding passes anymore. I, I think the days of the of the paper boarding pass are completely over. You'll, you'll probably use your cell phone. Uh Everything that's on the plane that you've come to expect, the onboard magazine, uh, the pillow every once in a while, the blanket, uh, those are gone. And then in terms of in-flight service, I know there are people out there who believe that airline food really is an oxymoron. But for those people who are in first class who were remembering the days in which they tossed a salad, that got tossed. If they're remembering any kind of touch points in which somebody served them something, that probably got tossed as well. So you're going to see sort of like a grab-and-go food comp, uh, uh, approach. You're not going to see any any drinks being poured. So it'll be a BYO experience. And uh, I was talking to the chairman of United uh, just this morning who said, oh, by the way, that also includes mixed drinks. I just thought I'd mention that for you, Major. Uh, but- <laughs> you know me well <laughs> enough, Peter. You know me well enough. So, 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 so you're gonna, so you're gonna bring yeah. your wine skin with you before you get on board, right? Is that it? Yeah, but you're gonna, but you'll have to fill it after you clear security. So that becomes another complicated issue as well. And then, 
on the flight itself, you know, here's the point that people are, are, are living with a little bit of delusion. You know, it's very easy for the airlines to say now, in the interest of social distancing, we're going to block all the middle seats. Where you know you'll never sit in a middle seat. Yeah, they're saying that's going to that's going to uh, be expiring at the thirtieth uh, of June. Well, of course it's easy to say that now, and you only have nine people on the plane. But when June thirtieth rolls around, that, they're not going to go in there with mechanics and rip out the center seats. Center seats are not going anywhere. It's part of their business model. Uh, you know, they fly full planes. That's what the planes were flying before this. And sooner or later, maybe later, but they will fly full again. Will train travel change? It already has changed. And way before the pandemic, you know, Amtrak was not making any money. In fact, Amtrak's never made any money since 1977. The only area where Amtrak makes money is in the Northeast Corridor between Boston and Washington, D.C. with the Acela and the Northeast Regional Trains. But the old days for people like me who were trained geeks and love them of the Empire Builder and the Zephyr and the Sunset Limited and the Southern Crescent, they may be coming to an end because they are such money losing propositions that Amtrak could never make money because they've always been saddled with not enough budget and support from their owners, otherwise known as the United States Congress. So what Amtrak was doing way before the pandemic, they got rid of the dining cars on their long haul services. So that's, you know, that's not a good idea if you're traveling, you know, 36 hours from New York to Chicago. Um, and, and then they're going to start doing more infrequent trains and then bus service between cities that become more economically feasible for them than running a full staff and a full train. So you're going to see some big changes there as well. The only thing that's going to keep them going is, remember, I mentioned Congress. Well, no congressman doesn't want to have the train come through their city, through their district. So they're going to have a fight on their hands, but they're not going to be able to afford it. You mentioned bus service. In uh, This isn't true outside of many. This is not true in many cities, but it's true in Washington, D.C. If you want to go to, to, to New York City and you don't have a lot of cash, you can ride these buses uh, that provide yeah. a very, not, not very luxurious, but a, certainly a tidy and comfortable experience at a really low price point. But every seat is sold. Is that going to yeah. continue? Well, I remember the old days of bus service. George Raft was the driver, and you had a drifter sitting next to you drooling. I think that's what my bus experience was. But in the, in, you're laughing because you've been on that bus. I know you have. Uh, I might have been the guy but, drooling. You never know. <laughs> well, you brought you brought your own mixed drink. I got it. But but what's happened is in the last five or six years, they've got new fleets of buses, better safety, you know, leather seats, Wi-Fi blah, 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 but it doesn't really work well with social distancing. So initially, they will board buses, you know, where the seat next to you is going to be open, but that doesn't help you about the seat behind you. I mean, think about social distancing. There's no six feet of separation any way you look at it. Most of travel, whether it's on a cruise ship, whether it's on a bus or an airplane, you're dealing with large numbers of people in a confined space. So the, the bus companies have a choice of either putting on more buses, carrying fewer people, which doesn't do well for their pricing model, or, you know, redesigning the floor plan of the bus, which won't work either. What if everybody has an N95 respirator, which means provides maximum protection from that which you breathe out and from that which you breathe in? Can that make a difference in any of these scenarios you've just run through? It can, because remember, if you're requiring people to wear the mask or they can't get boarded, then you already know they're coming on the bus or the plane or the cruise ship or the train already wearing that mask, and then they're just going to have to sit and grin and bear it 
when in terms of where they're going to sit. Right, but there's a qualitative difference between an N95 respirator and a bandana. And if everyone has an N95, sure. then there's a higher degree of confidence that you're safer. You're right, but that's an educational process that's got to be, you know, basically displayed and 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 broadcast so that people know what the rules are. Right now, here's an interesting fact. Uh an overwhelming number of people who fly on a major U.S. airline only fly that airline once or maybe twice a year. They're not your road warriors. They're not guys like us who are, on a, who are used to being on a plane every two or three days. So they don't really know the rules. So that's a, that's a communications challenge that every mode of transportation is going to have to have to deal with. Cruise ships. Yeah. Future. This year, not much of one. Uh, they got a pretty steep hill to climb. You know, if you look at just the sheer numbers, Major, of the 366 ships that were normally sailing the oceans of the world, only about 22 of them uh, were actually affected in any way, shape, or form by, by COVID-19. And yet, that's less than 10, that's a little bit more than 10%. But yet those indelible and intense visual images of that, you know, of that princess ship being quarantined in Yokohama or the other princess ship unable to come into San Francisco or the or the Holland America ships that were denied entry into Florida uh, with sick people on board. I mean, those don't just erase right away. People remember them. So, and then you've got the CDC no sale order, which is a 90 day order that's expiring about the end of June, early July. But there's no indication whatsoever that the CDC won't extend that order because part and parcel of that order is that the cruise ships have to present a comprehensive plan to the CDC of how they're going to change the environment their cleaning protocols, their disinfecting protocols, their actual floor design uh, to be able to satisfy the CDC that they can sail again. And the CDC is not moving fast in this department. So for the rest of this year, that's compounded by that. Your Alaska cruise season is basically dead on arrival because Canada has banned all cruise ships from their ports for the, for the, uh, for the, near, and, and for the near future. And what that means, most people aren't aware of something called the Jones Act. Uh, it was a it was a it was a law passed in 1939 as an as an attempt to protect the U.S. merchant marine. And here's what it said: No ship that's not registered in the U.S., which by the way means no cruise ship, uh, can sail between any two U.S. ports without stopping in a foreign port first, because they wanted to maintain the the integrity of the union's unloading and loading. Okay, one small problem: That's why the cruises to Alaska always started in Vancouver, so that you went from Canada to a U.S. port which would be, you know, Juno. Well, if Canada's not letting cruise ships in on any Canadian port, there's no way for any cruise ship to get to Alaska. So that, that season is dead. The only thing that's saving the cruise lines is two things. They went out to the capital markets and they got a huge infusion of investment money uh, to give them enough liquidity. We're calling anywhere between two and $4 billion per cruise line to give them enough cash to not sail for the next 12 months. And then they're hoping on future bookings from their loyal customers, which, by the way, are holding pretty strong right now. So they're even they're only about 20 percent down year over year. So you're going to start seeing cruises start in maybe January, February next year. And the passengers will be there. Repeat loyal cruises. How does the hotel industry function in the new normal? And do you envision these properties that are built around regular conference attending attendance procedures and money surviving? Well, they may survive, but that doesn't mean they're going to open right away. 
because, you know, what's, what is a hotel? It's a social gathering. It's people sharing experiences. You mentioned meetings and conventions, but it's also their public areas, their lobbies, their bars, their restaurants, not to mention, you know, what's being done in the guest rooms. So short of the hotels changing their names to uh, the hazmat inn, they're going to have to focus on process way more than product. And a number of hotels are already doing that. Hilton has partnered with the Mayo Clinic and the folks who make Lysol, and they're doing all sorts of electrostatic spraying and disinfecting. Uh, all the major chains are doing that because they're going to have to focus on that to give the the you know the travelers the confidence and the trust and uh, to get over this fear. But then it's going to change your hotel experience, isn't it? You know the bars can't be operating the way they used to be. There, there are a lot of hotels that had you know clubs. You know you can't be close to anybody in a club. It defeats the definition of a club. Uh, and the restaurants as well. And and so what's happening is the mid-level hotels that are not necessarily attached to convention centers that, you know, are, you know, that can welcome guests without having to be at a meeting, they'll probably be reopening first. The big box hotels like the New York Hilton here or the Marriott Marquis in New York, I'm talking to you from New York today, they got a problem because 85% of their business is meetings and conventions. And to extrapolate from that, I mean, think about this. If you're running McCormick Place in Chicago or the Javits Center in New York or the LA Convention Center, who's showing up? Answer, nobody. Because in the absence of widespread testing or a vaccine, everybody wants a guarantee. The lawyers are having a field day, right? Businesses won't let their employees travel without that guarantee. The employees don't want to go without the guarantee. And either states, locations, or governments are trying to protect their borders because they want assurances that Major or Peter are not going to show up frothing at the mouth or glowing in the dark. And right now, we don't have that guarantee to give them. That's why we're talking a year out. That's the And you said the magic word, Peter, vaccine. Are those who are in uh, C-suites for all these major companies, airlines, cruise ships, hotels saying, look, we just got to ride this out for six to 12 months, then there's a vaccine and all our problems are over. Well, that's their, that's their magical thinking. Uh, and we don't know there'll be a vaccine in 12 months. But look, we're living in a world of, of indemnity uh, and litigation and waivers. So when they reopen those Georgia beauty parlors and my favorite one, the bowling alley, where you put your three fingers in somebody else's holes and rent shoes, uh, you know, when you went to get your haircut, they made you sign a waiver saying that if you contracted COVID-19, you wouldn't sue them. But you know what? It works both ways. Where's the waiver they're going to give me? You know, so it's it's crazy. And until we get to a reasonably accepted, maybe even court tested protocol for giving people that guarantee, who's going to travel anywhere in the long term? Nobody. And to your general point about travel and hotels and large conventions, with or without a vaccine, but let's just say for the sake of argument, at some point in the future there is a vaccine, I have to wonder if the executives of these companies, whether it's airlines and hotels, let's just take those two, say to themselves, you know, our loads are going to be down anyway, because guess what? During this COVID-19 crisis, people discovered they can do things without traveling to the conference, without going to that convention, and they can do it remotely. So even when we can, we're not because it's too expensive. You know what? I would tend to disagree with that on one area, and that's this. You know, the Zoom call mentality now is great if you're talking to members of your own company or your own division or your own family. But if you need to go out there and seek out new business in either this country or a foreign country, nothing beats face-to-face engagement. Nothing beats having a personal conversation. Nothing beats human contact. And we have a culture 
that has evolved to the point where our DNA is not about wanting to travel. It's a DNA that needs to travel. We just have to figure out how. So it's it's going back to what happened, in, you know, like 20 years ago when they developed teleconferencing. That flew like a lead balloon. It didn't work. It worked within corporations and, and divisional meetings on a Tuesday morning. But in terms of going out and getting new business, it didn't. And I don't think it will again. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about innovation, because if you've been to a select number of major American airports, you've seen something in addition to the TSA pre-line, something called Clear. Yeah. And Clear was moving into concerts and sporting events. Terrible timing for them, but they're innovating also in this space. What are they trying to do and how do you imagine things like that might be technologically significant in whatever this new normal is? Well, you can count on the fact that the Clear folks are working on a new phase of biometrics, which will take your temperature at the same time they read your eyes. Uh, and speed up that process. Because right now, if there was ever a time to speed up the process and still be in alignment with you know, public hygiene protocols, this is the time. Uh, so I think there's a great opportunity for them. You mentioned sports events and, and concert halls. They were already in them. Now they're going to perfect the technology. So I think there may be an intersection that by the time we are, you know, the number of people are coming back and, and planes are flying again at, at a reasonable level and people are ready to go out and be entertained in mass gatherings, uh, the, the clear technology might actually be the trick. All of this, or what I'm about to talk about, Peter, is that it's uh, embryonic stage, but uh, the government of Germany has talked or at least floated the idea of a certificate about your healthfulness as regards to COVID-19. If you've tested, you have antibodies and you're immune, get an immunity certificate. Yeah. As we think about this globally, do you imagine that that's going to be something that is either going to be thought about more seriously, required, institutionalized? What are your thoughts on that? It's not only being thought about, it will be required. Uh, you and I may be old enough to remember the old carte jaune, the yellow health card that we used to have to carry in the 60s and 70s and 80s. By the way, it's still around to prove to immigration authorities and health authorities in arriving countries that we've been vaccinated against smallpox and yellow fever and we were properly prepared for malaria, etc. Well, that's going to come back now. It's already started in the, in the country of Chile. They're issuing their citizens immunity cards if they test negative. So that's a first step. But as you and I both know, testing negative in, you know, in May doesn't mean you, you haven't caught it in June when you're ready to travel. So they're going to have to come up with a protocol that is much more real time and one that's internationally accredited and accepted or it won't work. But you can count on it coming. It's going to happen. It will be akin to a passport. It'll be in addition to the passport. Yeah. I mean, it'll be it will be like the health equivalent of that. You'll have it tucked in there or there'll be some means by which you establish your healthfulness before you're allowed to travel internationally. Sure. They might even do it as a microchip in your passport the way they're doing a lot of new passports now. The real question is, how up to date can it be to actually be effective in telling somebody that, you know, you're OK? Anything else in this world that you know so much about that we haven't covered that you're eager to tell my audience about? Yeah, find me a place to go so I can go there. I, 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 <laughs> this is the eighth week I've been in my apartment here in New York. It's the longest period of time I've spent anywhere since I'm 17. So, Major, what I've done, and maybe somebody else would like to do this as well because it works. I cre you just mentioned passport. I've created my own new passport. And what I do is I stamp it every time I go from the bedroom to the living room. It makes, it makes me feel better. Is there an official involved in that stamping, or are you just doing it yourself? No, my wife does that, but the problem is sometimes, <laughs> okay, sometimes I'm denied entry. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's a subject for an entirely different podcast, Peter Greenberg. I guarantee you that. Uh, I can't thank you enough for all of this knowledge, and it's an evolving conversation. We will do this again. Thank you so much, and be well, be safe, and enjoy those travels from uh, one room to I'll the other. I'll go stamp it right now. Thanks, Major. All right. Thanks, Peter. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.